Uh, do you remember uh, having those friends in high school or maybe even grade school who could tell you the actual truth about yourself and get away with it? Uh, they could tell you that your latest fashion choice is a mistake or that the, the idea that you're working on is really dumb or that you're, you have bad breath today, whatever, whatever it happens to be. They could tell you these things as only your closest friends could get away with. And if you were ever offended by it, they would say what? They'd say, the, the truth hurts. Do you remember when the truth hurt? Like now it's not supposed to hurt. I, I get it because we live in, a, in a, a postmodern society where truth is all relative. And one of the supposed advantages of truth being all relative is it should never hurt anybody. Because it's not objective, it doesn't, it doesn't have any real meaning, and so we'll just uh, sort of craft everything to be inoffensive, and offensiveness is the only great evil that remains in a society without truth. In fact, we go to uh, great lengths defining the terms by which we will be offended. Give you an example. This week, uh, I, this I found this article in the Christian Post, but I noticed it was posted uh, in a number, number of other publications. But this is the headline from the Christian Post. This is not a joke, by the way. Professor apologizes to medical students for being offensive, saying that only women can get pregnant. That is a real headline. That actually happened. Here's, here's the, from, the, from the article. It says, after using the term pregnant women during a lecture, the professor of an endocrinology course apologized for uttering that phrase. I'm very sorry for that. It was clearly not my intention to offend anyone. The worst thing I can do as a human being is to be offensive, he said. I said when a woman is pregnant, which implies that only women can get pregnant, and I most sincerely apologize to all of you. Now, not only should it be a little bit shocking to us that a medical professor would be engaged in denying a biological reality for medical students, but he also, in, in his, in his uh, apology, makes this statement that the worst thing I can do as a human being is to be offensive. Really? I mean, human beings have been doing terrible things to each other as long as we've been on the planet. They abuse each other. They use each other. They kill each other. And the worst thing that we can do is be offensive? The worst thing that you can do as a human being right now is to hurt someone's feelings, even if the information that you're providing is truthful? Kind of a ludicrous idea, right? The article state, states that professors actually fear their students right now because they have complaint boards to which they can report their professors for having offended them over things like this. 
And so professors are playing hide and seek, run and hide from students who actually believe that their feelings can reshape their biological reality. Remember where we began this study? The beginning of Colossians, we said that one definition of sanity is the ability, the capacity to distinguish between reality and delusion. Really difficult to continue to define sanity in a culture where we've simply chosen the delusion as our new reality. So our passage from Colossians gets really complicated in our current cultural context. Uh, Colossians 3, 18 and 19, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is a controversial passage, more controversial today than it has been in a long time. Uh, controversial because it tells wives that they need to submit, and we kind of think that submission in our culture is a bad word. Uh, started to unpack that a little bit last week, but also apparently it's controversial because it sort of indirectly expresses the idea that there is a binary gender at work in human society, that there are men and women, that there are husbands and wives, and that these things are, are clearly objectively definable. Well, let's just review what we said last week, what Scripture uh, informed us about last week uh, in regard to submission. And I was thinking about this uh, by way of example. I want to talk to you uh, uh, about my relationship with Caleb. He's not here this morning, so it's a good opportunity for me to pick on him. But uh, uh, Caleb and I has, have a terrific working relationship. We love each other, uh, respect each other, and it, it works works very well. Uh, I obviously have a few years on Caleb, and I have a lot more experience, but uh, we're n there's no hierarchy in the office. We are colleagues. Nevertheless, because I do have some years on him and some experience, Caleb extends a certain amount of deferential respect to me over those things. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm always leading and he's always following. Sometimes he leads and, and I follow him. And that's a good illustration of how submission can exist between people and, and that we can submit to one another as opposed to thinking of submission as a hierarchical relationship where one is superior and one is inferior. Um, submission can kind of play back and forth. And so I want to use that relationship as an example to kind of illustrate this better. So one of the things we said about uh, submission last week is that submission is an active and powerful choice. So in other words, if uh, either one of us was obligated all the time to follow the other, there would be no submission happening. That it, it wouldn't be submission. It's the power of submission is in, in, the, in my ability to make the choice, have the option to not submit, and I choose to do it. That empowers that relationship. Sometimes we submit uh, in order to support a task or a role. So with Caleb and I, that 
happens a lot. Uh, basically, what it means is when it has to do with issues surrounding the pulpit and preaching, uh, generally, Caleb defers to me. When it has to do with youth ministry, I defer to him. I'll follow him and, and take a supportive role in a, in a ministry where he has a specific task to fulfill, and I recognize that uh, I need to stay out of his way at the very least and be an asset to him, preferably. Submission honors one who is worthy. I can tell you that there are some things, despite the fact that I have more years and more experience, there are some things that Caleb is simply better at than I am. And so I will follow his lead around some of those areas just because I know he's going to do a better job than I will with it. But submission also invites one to be worthy. So there are things that I do better, but I will sometimes still back off and let him take the lead because it's an opportunity for him to grow into that role. I have, for instance, many years more experience as a public speaker. But if you have listened to Caleb lately, you will recognize that he is blossoming as a public speaker and becoming quite a gifted preacher. What that requires is that I get out of his way every once in a while and allow him to grow in that. This is how we serve one another. And the most important, the most important issue that I want to raise about this is this. We offer our submission to the supremacy of Christ and because of the supremacy of Christ. In other words, Caleb and I regularly serve each other in ministry in this place. We don't necessarily do that because he or I are such great people, although we like to think <laughs> that we're okay. We do it because we believe in the mission of Christ, and we see each other's success as key to accomplishing the mission of Christ in this place. And so we are invested in one another being successful in ministry because we believe that will be a blessing to the kingdom. Paul puts it this way in, in uh, Colossians 3 and 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We do what we do because of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Regardless of how our other relationships are formed, regardless of how strong or weak they are. We do what we do because we want to see the mission, the objective, the will of Jesus Christ advanced in this place, in this church, in this community, in our homes. It goes without saying, I guess, that the world does not share with us this assumption that everything should should bring glory to Jesus. That everything should be uh, a deference to his supremacy. We can recall in our study of Romans, the supremacy of God, the writer of Romans says, is manifest. It's obvious. You look at the creation around you, 
and you see God's work, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that someone created it. And yet men choose to deny it. They have this evidence that sits right in front of them and they insist that it must have some other uh, means of existence. And so in verses 21 through 23, he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now the passage goes on to explain that once the heart of man has turned to idolatry, one of the very next things that happens is that there is a confusion about gender and sexuality. This is not coincidental. This comes up because gender and sexuality is core to the created order. It's part of the way that we are created to exist. It is a found foundational building block of creation. And it is a building block that is constantly today under attack. We have been talking a lot about deceptive philosophies. Let's talk about some of the deceptive philosophies, very active in our world today. One of them is this. Gender is an entirely social construct. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, social construct is something that uh, doesn't exist naturally. It arises because the society has sort of created that expectation. And to be perfectly fair, there are a lot of social constructs around gender. So, for instance, for centuries, women were not allowed to vote or to own land. And generally, the explanation given for this was that women were the intellectual and emotional inferior of man. Well, that is not based in reality. That is uh, a, a hypothesis that we can test and, and disprove pr pretty easily. It is a social construct. It is a belief that is held socially that is not natural and not, in a lot of ways, even defensible. But the assumption here, the assumption in the culture, is that all of gender is a social construct. That it only exists in human history and human tradition and the human mind. Biology cannot explain or define gender because biology is simply unrelated to gender. In fact, we can't really know what anybody's gender is until they're old enough to feel it and express it. But then, of course, whatever they express won't have any particular meaning either. It will simply be a personal social construct. See, one of the first problems that emerges when we start trying to, to, to conclude 
that gender is purely a social construct is that we end up with no objective definition of gender whatsoever. We separated gender from the most obvious outward physical signs of gender. But then we go further to separate gender from anything that we have previously associated with man or woman. Gender, in effect, doesn't actually exist based on this reasoning. It's just a concept that we've created for ourselves. The other deceptive philosophy that we run into quite frequently is that gender equality requires an equity of outcome. And this idea of equity comes up a lot right now in the culture. And it basically means that the end result needs to be fair, it needs to be even, it needs to be balanced. Everybody needs to have kind of the same experience at the end of the day. As, as distinguished from equal opportunity, equal opportunity, we all start with the same set of opportunities and depending on how we navigate through them, we all have a different experience. Equity is the idea that we need to rebuild, reshape, restructure culture such that at the end of the day, everybody's experience is roughly equal. This concept is at odds somewhat with the first uh, idea that uh, gender is a social construct because if, if gender is undefined, if biology has no role in the definition of gender, then women essentially don't actually exist and neither do men. And so the idea of having equity between categories that don't exist in real life is kind of a broken idea. If you're getting confused, that's okay. It is confusing. Those who think that they are men and women, according to this theory, are only performing the expectations that they've adopted from the culture. And the brave ones, you've noticed this probably a lot lately, the brave ones are those who are willing to defy this binary male-female, man-woman uh, uh, concept and express a gender identity outside of that structure. Which, of course, also doesn't actually exist. The only reason that we can self-identify in the 85 to 120 different gender identities that are currently uh, popularly bandied about is because these gender identities have no particular meaning. There is no objective standard for anything beyond how you feel about a thing. So now, because we have this need for equity, whatever your gender expression, you must be afforded the same outcome. 
This is why in this kind of comical debate over whether or not men can use women's restrooms if they identify as women, we have been unwilling to accept the sort of middle ground solution of providing an extra restroom that's gender neutral. Why? Well, because the experience for every individual needs to be identical. Their outcome needs to be the same. It needs to be equitable. And regardless of how narrowly I might define my gender identity, the culture then is expected to reshape itself to me so that my experience can be like everyone else's experience. I demand full inclusion. And as a matter of fact, identity today, the way that we talk about identity in the culture, identity has a lot more to do with what we will be offended by than it has to do with who we are. Because what we'll be offended by is kind of the point of the whole thing. So you've probably heard this uh, discussion lately about gender pronouns. This is, this is the new thing. Everybody's got to tell you what their gender pronouns are. And if I choose a gender pronoun that's outside of the binary, you need to respect this. Why? Well, because in making these declarations of my sexual identity, my gender identity, and my gender pronouns, I'm essentially telling you in advance what I'm going to be offended by. I've given you full warning so that you know that I will be offended and so that you have to back off and make sure that you don't offend me because offending people is the worst thing that you could do to another human being, right? Why is this offense idea so important? Well, I'll tell you why it's important. It's important because the logic of these approaches is unworkable. If you just follow these premises to their logical conclusions, they begin to fall apart on their own. So how do we prevent these arguments from being destroyed in public discourse? Get really offended before anybody can make a logical argument. Before anybody can say, well, wait a minute, maybe your body is trying to tell you something about what gender you are. Ah! I get offended and I have to shut down that conversation because we do not want that conversation to reach its natural conclusion. Well, let's look for a minute here at what the Bible has to say about gender. First of all, the, the Bible is not apologetic, does not hesitate to present gender as binary, that is, there are male and female, and those are really the only categories. And it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't hesitate to connect that binary gender identity with your human physical reality. Your physiology determines your gender. Ah! Again, we have to be offended by that because otherwise the reasonableness of it will undermine the whole argument. But... 
is this really a radical idea? The culture around us is largely presenting this as if the churches and the Bible's notions about gender are radical ideas. But the fact of the matter is that up until very recently, sex and gender, the terms, were used interchangeably. They were the same thing. Whatever physical parts you had determined your gender. That's why when babies are born, we, f we felt for so long how foolish we were. We felt for so long that a baby could come out of the womb and we could look at their physical parts and make a determination about what gender they are. Now we're being told that, that, that we can't really do that. When gender theorists in the early 90s started to propose that gender was somehow separate from physiology, that your biology really didn't have anything to do with your gender identity, there were very few people who even took it seriously. I mean, I, I think we, we all kind of laughed it off because it was such a preposterous idea. It's one of those ideas that can emerge out of academia, almost exclusively out of academia, because it's, a, it's one of those theoretical concepts that when tested in the real world begins to fall apart. And so it existed in the classroom. Problem is now, we've got a couple of generations that have been raised on some of this ideology, and so now a significant portion of academia and a significant portion of the media and a significant portion of the government in our country have adopted this idea that your biology has nothing to do with your gender. Quite without evidence, the world has changed its definition of things that we all once understood to be true. So Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Men and women, therefore, are unique reflections of God's image. This is at the core of our understanding of the creation. That men and women both reflect God's image and they do so uniquely. Not only do we share the male-female distinctions of the rest of nature. I mean, this is one of the things that sort of undermines the whole argument. If you look at the animal kingdom, all mammals are dependent on this male-female dichotomy for their existence. There is no social construct that guides them in their understanding of gender. There is just their physical reality and their instinct. We share with them that male-female distinction, but beyond that, the relationship between male and female, man and woman, as it is biologically determined by nature, is central to the creation. And 
in our differences and in our shared humanity, we reflect the image of God. In our sameness, we reflect the image of God, but also in the things that make us uniquely male and female, we reflect the image of God. So it goes on in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. So man and woman are created for a unique and interdependent purpose. They have a shared purpose to subdue the earth, a task for which they will absolutely need one another. In no small part, because of their need for one another for reproduction. And physical reproduction is a great illustration of the interdependence between man and woman in creation. Put simply, there is no filling the earth without men and women, as defined by their biology, interacting with one another to create offspring who will then fill the earth. There's no other way that that happens. That is, uh, that is the reality that we are confronted with whenever we try to make these theories work. That is core to the human experience, our experience not only of our gender, but of family, what that means. Now, we should point out that with the advent of modern birth control, the human mind in the West in particular has separated sexuality, human sexuality, from reproduction. It's made it two separate, completely separate categories. Now, that has significance for a lot of different things, but it's particularly significant to this discussion inasmuch as human reproduction is incredibly inequitable, which is to say that women carry much more of a burden in human reproduction than men do. There's really no way to get around the physical reality of that statement. A few minutes interaction, and a woman is stuck with this process for nine months. Has to allow her body to go through all of these changes. And then has to go through the process of getting that thing out of her body. All of this is difficult. All of this is challenging. And none of these burdens are shared by her male counterpart. And yet we have a demand for equity. Our experience must be the same. Our outcomes must be the same. What this has meant in terms of modern feminism is revolved largely around the right to abort a child. You think about this. Why, why do women who have this miraculous capacity for reproduction want the right to end that capacity. Well, a man 
and impregnate a woman and then walk away from his responsibilities and carry no burden. Right to abortion in this country is built upon the premise that a woman should have the equal right to walk away from her responsibility to that child. We want the outcome to be the same for everybody. And what are we willing to do to get it? I want to tell you this morning that the Bible affirms the equality of gender, but it does not promise equity. It does not promise that our experience of life will be the same or that uh, the burdens that we carry will even be similar. Critics, of course, will say that Scripture just treats women uh, as inferior across the board, so there's nothing that uh, nothing about this that should surprise us. I want to undermine that. I want to ch- think thinking about that. Uh, and uh, let, let me just, as a first point to make here, one of the things uh, commonly that people in the culture object to in Scripture in regard to the Scripture's description of men and women is that when Eve is created, you remember this story, when Eve is created, God says, I will, it's not good for this guy to be by himself, which you made that observation about a lot of men over the years, right? Not, not good for that guy to be alone. Um, God makes this observation. It's not good for the man to be alone. And he says, I will make a helper or a helpmeet uh, for him, depending on what translation you're reading. And a lot of people really object to this. Helper. So a woman is created just to be a servant to the man. Here's what, here's what we are not understanding about that. The word there is azer. The Hebrew word is azer. And it, it does mean help or helper. But it's really important to understand how it's used because it, it comes up, uh, oh, uh, dozens of times in the Old Testament. And outside of that one reference in Genesis where Eve is called Adam's helper, Almost all of the references are references to God helping his people. Now, I don't think those references are meant to imply that God is somehow inferior to his people. I think what they're saying is that there are things that God can supply to humanity that only God can supply to humanity. And when God creates woman... To be compatible with man, he creates something to add to the creation that can only be provided by the woman. She is unique and she is special and she is an incredibly important part of the whole creative picture. And as a matter of fact, the way that men and women in Scripture are helpful to one another is specifically because they are biologically, physiologically, psychologically, and even to some extent spiritually different from one another. And it's in those differences that they come together and they complete the creation picture. 
As a matter of fact, what the Bible teaches us is that the glory of each gender is in its embrace of its unique creation. Rather than Rather than focusing on our delusions about gender, treating our differences as irrelevant, our sexuality unrelated to our gender identity, Scripture calls upon us to bear the image of God through these natural distinctions. And so we have boys and girls, men, women, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, All of these identities are precious, are sacred, and all of them are binary. They are men and women, male and female, and all of them reflect the image of God. So the present opportunity for the church that I want to share with you this morning is to celebrate the glory of creation. We were, uh, some of us talking the other night about this current season of uh, The Voice. You know, I'm, Jesse and I are big fans of The Voice. I'm a big fan of The Voice. Jesse likes uh, uh, the talent show. America's Got Talent. On both shows, uh, if you come on as a contestant and before you perform, before you uh, lay your talent out to be seen, if you express that you are a member of some kind of gender or sexual minority, and especially if you express that you have been ill-treated because of it, you're almost guaranteed to make it to the next round because you're considered brave. I mean, have you noticed this? Have you noticed this? We celebrate, as a culture, we celebrate anyone who rejects those norms and embraces something outside of those norms, and we talk about how brave they are. I think in a lot of ways it's kind of the same sense, brave in the same sense that the serpent might have told Adam and Eve how brave they were for eating the apple. You're really brave for rejecting this definition of life and truth and goodness that God has given you and adopting your own. It's not really brave. But sadly, in our schools right now or among young people in our country, the best way to get a lot of positive attention is to declare yourself a member of some group that's outside of normal human interaction. Here is the opportunity for the church. It's very tempting for me, especially as a you know, former clinician, it's very tempting for me to just attack these broken ideas that come from the culture. But that has limited value. Uh, you know, the more you, the more you attack it, sometimes you just drive people's feet into the sand. They just become more and more determined to resist. The opportunity for the church in this age is simply to stand up 
for the things that are true. Not, not, to, not to spend all our time attacking what's broken about the culture, but to stand up for the things that are true about God and true about creation. And so we have an opportunity in this present world for the church to be a place where male and female, masculine and feminine, are celebrated as both existing within God's image, both beautiful and both miraculous. If we can do that, if we can celebrate with our sons and daughters what it means to be sons and daughters, what it means to be young men and young women, if we can help them take joy and pleasure in the way that God created them, to feel at ease and comfortable and confident about who they are, not in the, not in the recreation that they've chosen, not in the, the emotional uh, response to, to cultural pressures, but to make them feel happy, at ease, and joyful about who they are and how they were naturally created by God to reflect his image. It's a fantastic opportunity for the church, and I hope that we will embrace that opportunity because there's simply not many outlets in the world right now ready to celebrate young men and women for being young men and women. <laughs>